Coming up in this episode, foreign fighters have been flocking to Syria and Iraq. We estimate somewhere around 38,000 individuals from outside the region have come to the conflict. In part two of our exclusive interview, Nicholas Rasmussen, director of the U.S. National Counterterrorism Center, says that's a daunting number. But there is a smaller number that causes greater concern. We're particularly concerned about the subset of that 38,000, um, probably in the approximately 7,000 range of people who come from Western countries because of the greater ease with which they might be able to travel to, uh, to Western countries and even uh, potentially to the United States. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Got a very graphic situation. San Bernardino. Upwards of 14 people that are dead. We are now investigating these horrific acts as an act of terrorism. Paris. An attack on all of humanity. The Islamic State. I'm back, Obama. They want you to imagine them in the shadows as something greater than they are. Hostile nation states. They can't inflict mortal damage to the United States. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. This is Target USA. America in the crosshairs. Whether it's anarchists, cyber criminals, nation states, or terrorists, America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. I'm J.J. Green, previously on Target USA. The list of things that keeps me up at night is actually longer now than it perhaps was a few years ago. Nicholas Rasmussen, director of the National Counterterrorism Center, told Target USA that list is led principally by two items. One is the, the possibility of, a, of an attack here, here inside the homeland by a group of networked operatives from a foreign terrorist organization who somehow may have escaped our intelligence community's uh, collection. I also worry uh, a great deal about the continued threat to our aviation sector. Now, on this program... The world has been preoccupied with the size of the so-called Islamic State terror organization since it sprang up in 2014. But for all of that preoccupation, there has been precious little certainty about just how big ISIL is, who's actually fighting on the ground, and how it all impacts U.S. national security. Rasmussen puts the threat into numbers. There's the question of how many ISIS fighters, ISIL fighters, are fighting on the battlefield in Iraq and Syria. And I think in some of the recent public testimony uh, on this question, we've revised downward some of our estimates of those numbers, the number of, of fighters on the ground in Iraq and Syria, to the, to the point where we're probably talking about something in the low 20,000s. Those are rough estimates. This is not the kind of uh, number that's easily developed with any kind of precision. The other number we look very, very carefully at, because it in some cases bears more directly on the threat picture involving the United States, is the number of foreign fighters who have traveled to the conflict zone. And the reason that's important is because foreign fighters, you know, Fighters or terrorists who've come from a Western country or a country outside of the Middle East, in some cases they pose the greater threat um, because of their potential to come back outside and leave the conflict zone in the future. We've estimated that number of individuals who've traveled to Iraq and Syria as, a, as being above 38,000 at this point. Now, that doesn't mean that today there are 38,000 
bad guys on the ground from, from outside of Iraq and Syria who've all gone to the conflict zone. What that means is over the course of this three, four year horrible conflict in Iraq and Syria, we estimate somewhere around 38,000 individuals from outside the region have come to the conflict. That's a large pool of people that is potentially able to carry out terrorist activities in their home, in their areas of, of national origin, should they choose to return home at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. We're particularly concerned about the subset of that 38,000, um, probably in the approximately 7,000 range of people who come from Western countries because of the greater ease with which they might be able to travel to, uh, to Western countries and even uh, potentially to the United States. And this invasion. The Islamic State group has meticulously produced and planted videos on social media regularly, trying to reinforce its menacing message to the West, but also, at the same time, looking for more recruits in Western countries, including the U.S. It will be tomorrow. Maybe it will be in London or Berlin or Rome. Messages like this one posted on April 4th, 2016, are of great interest to Rasmussen because Americans are heeding the call. As for the number of Americans we kind of put into this category, um, Director Comey, uh, Secretary Johnson from Homeland Security, we've all put that figure at, at being around 250 Americans who in one way or another uh, have tried to travel to Iraq, either travel to Iraq and Syria uh, or tried to travel and had their travel disrupted. Uh, or prevented by law enforcement action. That 250 is a relatively modest number, um, but it is still a a number that gives us concern because that's a pool of of, of potential individuals who may, if they have uh, developed some kind of capability in Iraq and Syria, may at some point present a threat to the United States. Do you know if they're actually engaged or have been engaged in fighting in Syria or Iraq at this time? Of that 250... There are are individuals who fit a number of different categories, and some of them, and I won't give you a number, some of them certainly fit the category you just described, J.J., individuals who are on the ground fighting for one of the many extremist groups, terrorist groups operating inside Syria right now. Safe to say in the tens or more? I'd be reluctant to put a specific number on it, but as I said, uh, there are definitely um, U.S. persons, people with a, a direct tie to the United States, who are on the ground inside Iraq and Syria right now. How would you assess your ability to gather on these people, considering the situation there? There's no question that this is a difficult intelligence problem. And when I say that, uh, that's kind of a term of art in our business, it's a a difficult intelligence collection problem because when you're trying to collect intelligence about what terrorist groups are going to try to do in the future, you you try to come at it from a number of different directions. You try to um, find ways to gain human intelligence on what the group's intentions and plans are. You also look for ways to engage in technical collection um, that would give you information about terrorist groups, uh, the terrorist group's intentions. All of that is harder to do in a war zone environment like right now, like we see in Syria, in particular. In Iraq. We are slightly better off because we have a strong partnership with the Iraqi government and we can do certain things with them to improve our intelligence collection. In Syria, however, um, we long ago closed up our embassy and departed Damascus. And while I I would certainly argue that we're trying very hard and working very uh, uh, aggressively to improve our intelligence collection in Syria, we are at a bit of a deficit when you're trying to do that from outside the country. As you weave through this situation, it, it requires quite a bit of engagement with foreign foreign partners, 
because of you, because you don't have that visibility that you're talking about you need in, in order to engage this issue head on. I'm sure you have to get some kind of understanding from these foreign partners about, you know, the strength and the status of this organization, the Islamic State. But when you look at the organization like Al-Qaeda, Al-Nusra, AQAP, and AQIM, AQIS, that seems to be a whole different kind of issue. I'm just wondering how you confront that. The set of Al-Qaeda-affiliated organizations that you just rattled off, all of them, I mean, if you, if you read the newspapers or listened to much of the mainstream media today, you might be forgiven for forgetting that Al-Qaeda is still a significant threat to the United States and to our, our interests, both overseas and here at home. Because, and the reason that is is because so much of the media now is dominated by uh, ISIL, ISIS, the Islamic State. From where I sit in the intelligence community, we've never really lost our critical focus on al-Qaeda um, and the, the set of affiliate organizations that, that you listed. And that's a little bit what I was referring to when I mentioned earlier in our conversation about being spread more thinly than we were perhaps at earlier stages. The number of different al-Qaeda groups... Um, potentially engaged in terrorist activity directed at Americans remains pretty much the same as it was a few years ago. And so we haven't been – nothing has really fallen off the list of terrorist concerns we have over the past few years. The, the list just seems to have gotten a bit longer. I will say, though, though, though that in each of the places where we have a, a, a challenge from an al-Qaeda affiliate organization, in each of those places we have a, a network of partnerships with some of the local or the, the regional countries um, who are – active in that region and have particular strengths and capabilities that we can leverage to try to give us an advantage against al-Qaeda. We work very, very closely, for example, in, uh, in the Arabian Gulf region with our Saudi partners, with our, um, our other Gulf, par Gulf partners, in order to mitigate the threat posed by AQAP. Um, you mentioned AQIM, uh, the Islamic uh, or the uh, Al-Qaeda group operating in North Africa. There we work very, very closely with our French partners. We work very, very closely with some of the, the, the key um, nations in North Africa, places where we don't have to rely 100 percent on our own capabilities in order to confront the Al-Qaeda threat. It, but it's a constant effort, a constant um, a struggle to kind of build these coalitions and to maintain these coalitions to make sure that we're sharing information and enabling effective action against counter against our terrorist uh, adversaries. One of the real concerns is that these groups, as well as the Islamic State, are going to places that they haven't been before. Uh, and some of those places, the U.S. doesn't necessarily have the greatest of relationships politically. So is, and I've heard this before, the intelligence and security communities kind of operate on a different plane. Um, regardless of what the political situation is, there is this uh, camaraderie and there is this understanding we need to deal with this because it is a different kind of deal. So Give me, a, give me a sense of, of, of what your approach is to dealing with this, this, this problem as it spreads to some of these diverse places uh, that the U.S. may not have a relationship like it has with, with, with Britain or with France. That's a good question, and, and it is certainly true that in intelligence and security work, it is sometimes possible to effectively compartmentalize that work from other aspects of a bilateral relationship. So, for example, if our if the United States is having a difficult, intense period of, of relations with you know, country X, because of shared interests on the security front, it's still possible for us to work together to mitigate 
uh, a specific terrorist threat or to respond to a terrorist group. Now, obviously, when, the, when relationships um, grow tense over political issues or, or economic issues, that can bleed over into the work we do in counterterrorism. But again, in most cases, we're able to um, define shared interest or at least common interest that will allow us to work together. I will say one of the, the pieces of um, modest good news that's been embedded in all of this difficult um, um, period we've had the last few years in dealing with, with ISIL, one of the pieces of modest good news is that the, the web of, of nations cooperating on the problem is wider and deeper and broader than at any point in my experience. And while my State Department colleagues kind of like to point to the 60-plus nations that are part of the counter-ISIL coalition, I actually think of it as maybe even being broader than that, because the number of nations with which we've shared or exchanged intelligence information about ISIL foreign fighters or, uh, or, or potential ISIL threats is even, uh, even larger than that. As the international fight to degrade and defeat the Islamic State group, also known as ISIS, grows, so has the fight to keep up or surpass the group by other terror organizations. And Peter Neffinger, the head of the U.S. Transportation Security Administration, said recently they've seen that competition. Those groups are moving, whether you're talking about um, ISIL, uh, Al-Qaeda, core Al-Qaeda, or the splinter groups that have attached themselves respectively to one or the two of those, those primary groups. Uh, there's a little bit of a competition out there, and, and that competition means that, that, that the environment is a little more uncertain than it was before. And Rasmussen says not only has ISIL established itself as a preeminent terror group in the world, it's also established itself as a target. But that's not necessarily a good thing. What it means is more attacks. It's it's definitely a, a phenomenon we're watching very closely as ISIS ISIL has grown and and as they enjoyed the success that they enjoyed on the ground in Syria and Iraq what they effectively did was was put themselves at the forefront of a global community of extremists of terrorists and in the process they in a sense shoved to the side some of the senior leaders of, of Al Qaeda the Al Qaeda movement which for well over a decade had occupied that position as the as the vanguard of this global jihadist movement. Well, that sense of competition, um, on the one hand, can play out in, in very harmless ways like rhetoric and, and dueling media statements and uh, relatively benign ways. But in not so benign ways, it can also play out. They are competing with each other for recruits. They are competing with each other for um, success uh, in, the terrorist, uh, in the terrorist playbook. Um, as al-Qaeda has seen its influence wane in comparison to the Islamic State, um, there's no doubt that some of the al-Qaeda affiliates see the pathway back to preeminence, uh, to being, in a sense, number one, as coming from carrying out another spectacular attack against Western interests or the United States. Now, on the one hand, I say I already was worried about those groups, and I know how deeply motivated they are to carry out those attacks, so I wasn't any less worried about it before than I am now. But it does give me some sense of concern that they are seeking to one-up uh, other terrorist groups like ISIS, ISIL, um, by, by looking to carry out these attacks. That sense of competition could play out to our, uh, to our detriment. Intelligence and security leaders from all over the world agree. The fight against the Islamic State's brand of terrorism is going to extend out for years, perhaps more than a decade, perhaps more than one decade. Not because of the present-day threat from the Islamic State group, but because of what rises up after that organization has been put to rest. Still, Rasmussen is cautiously optimistic. 
I mean, this uh, this goes a little bit to what I said earlier uh, in our discussion, and that is the way in which the terrorism landscape has evolved over the last several years has left us in a place where we have more groups, more distinct terrorist uh, actors coming at us or, or, or interested in potentially attacking our interests in a larger array of locations, in a more diverse array of locations around the globe. And I... I'm, sometimes people try to draw me into saying, oh, you, you're saying that it's worse than it's ever been before. And I, I, would, I, I, I don't necessarily want to be drawn into saying that because, as I mentioned earlier, we have degraded very, very substantially and very, very importantly the ability of core al-Qaeda to carry out the kind of attack we saw on 9-11. And that's an amazingly consequential development over the last decade that we can take a great deal of pride in. We are safer as a country from that kind of large-scale catastrophic al-Qaeda attack, and that's important. But the risk of a smaller-scale attack that could come from at us from any one of, of, of uh, a number of different directions that, of the kind I just listed, um, that, that risk is greater now than it has been in previous years. And so that does make it a more challenging and difficult terrorism landscape in some ways than it has been in the past. Coming up in our next episode... An exclusive interview with the head of the European Union's police agency, Europol. Rob Wainwright is blunt about the terror threat facing Europe. Certainly in Europe, the most significant terrorist threat we've seen for at least a decade. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA.